Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. First up, David Wessel's economic update. I'm David Wessel, director of the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy at Brookings. When you look at the charts that update the federal fiscal outlook that the Congressional Budget Office and the White House put out periodically, you can see the ups and downs of the federal debt with a single line. It rises sharply during the Great Recession, levels off for the next several years, and then begins to turn up again. That one simple line is intended to convey the magnitude of the nation's fiscal challenges. In fact, that line is almost certainly to be far off the mark. It turns on factors that are impossible to predict. Will healthcare spending grow slowly as it has been lately, or will it grow more rapidly? How fast will the economy grow over the next decade or two? Where will interest rates be? How many Americans will, voluntarily or not, choose early retirement? How many immigrants will the U.S. accept? The White House Budget Office says that if President Obama's tax and spending policies are embraced by Congress in their entirety, then in 2019, the federal deficit will be about 2.3 percent of the gross domestic product. But then it says there's a 90% chance that the actual deficit in that year will be somewhere between a surplus of 4.6% of GDP and a deficit of 9.1% of GDP. That's huge. So given that uncertainty, what's the right thing to do with the federal budget? Should we do more spending cuts or tax increases now to avoid the possibility of fiscal catastrophe later? even if it means painful belt tightening that might prove unnecessary? Or should we do less belt tightening now and see how things turn out? See how fast healthcare spending rises, for instance. This is a very live debate. Now, politicians and most of the rest of us prefer our forecast to be simple and precise. Either we have a problem or we don't. But life isn't that simple. It's human nature to prepare for things for which we're certain. We buy hats and gloves because we know winter's coming. And it's human nature to buy insurance when we can, when someone, if not us, then the insurance company, can figure out what premium to charge us to protect us against the possibility that a hurricane will blow the roof off our houses. But if we have no way of knowing or calculating what's likely to happen, we're sometimes just willing to ignore a problem or delay. I mean, maybe that's one reason why consensus on climate change is so elusive. So we at the Hutchins Center invited some of the sharpest minds in academia to ponder the best way for Congress and the president to accept and embrace this inevitable uncertainty instead of pretending it doesn't exist. The long-term budget outlook. Do we know enough to worry? On December 15th, we'll hear Berkeley economist Alan Auerbach argue that the best way to respond to uncertainty is to save more now run smaller deficits now, and we'll hear others challenge that view. We'll look at ways that Congress can write tax and spending laws that automatically adjust when the economy surprises us, so we don't have to wait for slow-moving members of the House and Senate to figure out that the world isn't what they thought it would be and adjust. And then we'll hear the director of the Congressional Budget Office and his British counterpart describe just how hard it is to talk sensibly about uncertainties with politicians and the public. And we'll live stream the whole thing so you can listen in, too. Stay tuned after the interview to hear Wells Bennett describe a series of papers on the future of civilian robotics, which explore various questions about the integration of robotics into human life. My guest today is senior fellow Ron Haskins. Like so many experts at Brookings, he wears and has worn many hats. He is co-director of both the Center on Children and Families and the Budgeting for National Priorities Project. He is the Cabot Family Chair at Brookings. 
and he is a senior consultant at the Annie E. Casey Foundation in Baltimore. He was a former White House and congressional advisor on welfare issues and was instrumental as a senior congressional staffer in passage of the 1996 welfare reform law. He has degrees in history, education, and psychology, and has been an educator, a carpenter, and a sergeant in the United States Marine Corps. Hoorah. Welcome to the podcast, Ron. Thank you. Glad to be here, Fred. One question I'm very interested in, given your military experience, is how has having been in the United States Marine Corps impacted or informed your future career? Many ways, but I think probably the most important with actual application and things that I've done is leadership. Um, the Marine Corps was all about leadership. I learned a lot about how to convince people to do things. Uh, in the Marine Corps, you can use methods you can't use outside the Marine Corps, uh, and people use methods on you that they uh, presumably would not uh, use outside the Marine Corps. But I did learn a lot about how to lead people and get them to do things that you think should be done, uh, and that's incredibly valuable in Washington. I wish we had more people in Washington who did that because we don't get much done anymore. Well, that's great. Well, you've done a lot in, in Washington, so obviously it has been very important. Uh, you and co-author Greg Margolis have just come out with a new book published by Brookings Press. It's titled Show Me the Evidence, Obama's Fight for Rigor and Results in Social Policy. It's a great book, but can you summarize it in just a few sentences perhaps? Yes. Uh, it, it tells a story, and the story is how the Obama administration uh, has been the most important administration ever for using the results of social science research and especially scientific program evaluation to improve federal programs. This is long overdue. It's a strategy that we should have been following for many, many years, and I think it actually has promise for improving our social programs. One thing most people don't know is that our programs don't work. And we have many, many programs. There's a well-known article about 10 big social programs, including Head Start, uh, arguing that these 10 programs had been evaluated by scientific designs and shown either to produce very modest impacts or no impacts at all. So this is, it's really, it, the administration is laying out a way to improve American social policy across the board. And I, I would say there are two things to emphasize about their approach. One is they want federal agencies to award grant funds to people who are using program models that already have strong scientifically-based evidence of success. Just that step would greatly improve our social policy. Second, they want to evaluate using rigorous designs all programs that are being implemented with federal dollars. Even if a program design is good and it's been shown in previous studies to work, when you implement it in a new place with new people and new teachers and leaders and so forth, uh, it, it might not work. So the idea is continuous evaluation. And in a word, the goal here is to change the culture of program operation in the United States, to change the culture so that people running programs all over the country at the local level, in Spearfist, South Dakota, everywhere, New York City, that they their way of thinking is, we're going to find out if this works, we're going to use good evidence from, from rigorous designs, and then we're going to improve our program. That is the culture of evidence. If we had that, our programs would work much better and will work much better if Congress continues to fund these uh, 
the uh, the Obama in, initiatives. Uh, somebody has described the book as a page turner uh, for the public policy set, and I think that's definitely true. And I think it's an important story that that you and uh, Greg are telling about these initiatives. And I want to go into some more detail here in a minute. But first, I want to ask, um, how did you come across this idea and this topic? Bell Sawhill, my Brookings colleague and co-director of both those projects you mentioned, uh, and I are, along with our colleagues at Princeton, we publish a journal called The Future of Children. And for every journal, we write a 3,000-word policy brief. And we were doing an issue of the journal on, on preschool programs, and uh, I found out about one program that the, the initiative that this Obama administration was doing, because it's something I have been very interested in, and I knew a little bit about it. It's called Home Visiting. And the administration was planning to have a big initiative. It hadn't actually started yet, but they're getting it rolling. And there are already all kinds of political fights and so forth about the way they were doing it. So I knew about that, and I wrote this brief, a 3,000-word policy brief. And a friend of mine at, uh, at OMB named Kathy Stack, a great career official and a, a, a person who really is – in the book, I refer, refer to her as the queen of the Obama initiatives, and indeed she was, which you can do from OMB. Office of Management and Budget. And she called me up and said, you don't know the half of it. Let's have lunch. So I met her for lunch and she laid out for me the, not all the other initiatives but several of the other initiatives. And I was so excited because I came to Washington 30 years ago with the intent of being here for one or two years and going back to University of North Carolina and writing the definitive book about how social science research could guide policy while well, I learned that's a pipe dream. So I've always been interested in how we could use evidence from social science research to improve public policy, especially for children and families. So that was it. I applied for money to the Grant Foundation and they uh, gave us enough money to do the study. I hired Greg Margolis, who's now my co-author. He's now, by the way, uh, in law school at the University of Michigan. He's a very young man and he was spectacular. Uh, and we were off to the races. And I think a chief question somebody might ask is, uh, why is this new? Why hasn't it been done before? It's kind of a surprise to read a book like this and find out that social programs, government-funded social programs, haven't been subject to such rigorous uh, evidence before. Fred, you know, that is such a good question. I have really been surprised by the number of normal outside people like my mother and at least two or three other people. Uh, when they hear about my book and they start talking about it, one of the first things to say is, we don't know that these programs work? Well, how come we don't know? And in some of the programs that we're talking about here, they're 50 years, they're half a century old. And we Head Start's a great example. Everybody loves Head Start. It works great. It wasn't until about five or six years ago that we actually had a good evaluation of Head Start that met the scientific principles that the, uh, the Obama administration is, is, is trying to use here. So... It is very surprising, but it's a it's a fact. Let me tell you a number that's amazing. Peter Orzag, who used to be here at Brookings and was the head of the Office of Management and Budget and one of the chief architects and cheerleaders and you know drove this Obama evidence-based initiatives, even though he left the administration before they came to fruition. He has estimated that one percent of federal spending is on programs that have any evidence of success. That's his estimate, 1%. So this is not just a few social programs here and there that, gee, wouldn't it be good to know what they do. It's 
the overwhelming majority of government spending is on programs that we don't really have good evidence that they work. So do you consider uh, what the Obama administration is doing now kind of a test run of the evidence-based approach? Do you think it's going to uh, catch on? Yeah. Think of it this way. Uh, we spend about a trillion dollars a year on social programs for the poor and people below some income threshold, programs like food stamps, Medicaid, um, uh, the temporary assistance for needy families, our housing programs, daycare programs, and so forth. Um, the Obama one trillion. The Obama initiative is about five billion. So we certainly have a long way to go. We need to know whether those other programs work too. But here's the point to me that even more important: if we can establish what I refer to either earlier as this culture of evidence, then over the years, our attempts to help low-income kids do better, our attempts to have true educational equality of opportunity, we'll be able to do much better job of that than we are now. Uh, and so we do have a long ways to go. But yeah, this is just a start. Let's talk about the culture of evidence and what that means. And you talk in the book a lot about uh, different kinds of testing and evaluation, randomized control trials, which we hear about in the medical world. Mm -hmm. uh, talk about how the culture of evidence uh, in these kinds of testing programs apply to social policy. Mm -hmm. um, let's start with randomized control trials. They're somewhat controversial. They're less controversial than they used to be, especially because the what I would call a brilliant track record in medicine. Everybody believes that we've discovered all kinds of cures, drugs, devices and so forth. And the FDA, for example, Food and Drug Administration requires tests by random assignment before they will approve uh, a drug. And they insist on random assignment because it is the most effective way to establish that a program works. This does not mean that other evidence is worthless. It does not mean that. But if we really want to know if a given program like Head Start that we're going to spend big bucks on, if we really want to know it works, at some point we have to do a careful random assignment study of the program. And going back to the concept of culture of evidence, the idea would be in what the administration has tried to establish in these initiatives with a concept called tiers is that we have different levels of confidence that a program actually works. So we ha someone has an idea, they start a program, it sounds pretty good. Maybe it has some theoretical justification. Maybe something similar to it has been tried in the past and been subjected to good evaluation. And so that would be kind of the bottom tier. We think it's interesting. Maybe it works. We've got some good suspicions, maybe a little evidence of here and there, but we're going to subject it to a, a real test. And when we've done that with a random assignment study and it's proven to work, by random assignment study, then the administration would call that we're at the scale-up stage, which means, okay, we're, we've tested this now, maybe in two different places, it works well, and we know what the essence of the intervention is, we've got maybe manuals and all kinds of things to describe exactly how to do it. So now we're going to scale it up, we're going to take it to 20 places or 50 or 100. And keep in mind, if we had social, all Social programs are essentially local. That's where these programs are implemented. They're in the schools, uh, in community centers, in boys and girls clubs, in, in, in small organizations all over the country. They're the ones that are going to implement these programs. So when you say scale up in the United States, you're talking about 
thousands of places that have to do the program well or it's not going to have the kind of impact on our national problems like poor preparation for school, ability to read, reducing teen pregnancy, a whole host of issues like that that if we could have successful programs, we would promote opportunity in the country and we'd save a lot of government dollars. We waste a lot of dollars because people make lousy decisions and wind up you know, get, getting benefits to save themselves from a government program. So this is – it's a very solid approach and if we can follow it and stick with it 10, 20 years from now, we will reap the benefits. So how does it work at that local level in terms of the testing? Say there's a, a program in Dallas County. That's where I'm from, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, a, it's an education intervention. Let's get more kids from disadvantaged families to going to school. Who, who is going to uh, do a rigorous, uh, perhaps randomized control trial of that program? Is it the school district? Is it the state? The federal government come in and do that? Okay. Here's the first thing. The answer is yes. It has to be the local officials that believe in this, this is part of the culture of evidence. They want to evaluate what they do. Now they don't necessarily want to, especially if they already have the money. I'm involved in something right now here at the federal government that's going to happen in the next couple of days where really and truly people are trying to avoid the use of evidence because they already have the money and they have professional lobbyists here in Washington and they don't want to change it because they've got the money and they, they have – they can wave letters in your face from one constituent that says, my little Johnny was in this program and it worked and that's sufficient. So let's keep it going. No, we need to subject the program to solid evaluation. And that is done essentially by three in three ways. Some program operators are so sophisticated that they can do it themselves. This is not the best way to do it. But in the long run, I think that's going to have to be an essential thing because of the costs involved. We need program operators who know how to do ex experiments and will do it reliably themselves. In other words, they're really deeply committed to getting the answer about whether their program works, not just keeping their money. I mean, they obviously want to keep their money. Second thing is we have lots of university professors and even now uh, institutes and centers at universities around the country who know a lot about evidence, who know how to conduct experiments and will do it often will do it for a fairly reasonable price. And then third, we have big research organizations in the country like MDRC, Mathematica, APT, uh, RAND uh, that are incredibly capable of producing these kind of evaluations, um, both on a large scale, so for you know taking samples from all over the country and for doing something at a state level or even at the local level. So though we definitely have the technology down pat. We know how to do these studies and it's just a question of figuring out the easiest and most cost-effective way to do it. Uh, another question about the randomized control trial, RCT. I know in the medical environment, the, the design is to take a population of people and divide it, say, in half, randomly assign members to each half so you can control for all kinds of exogenous factors, administer the intervention, say a drug. One group gets the drug, one group gets the placebo, you measure the results. When you apply that to social policy, uh, is it more difficult is first question. Second question is, are there ethical concerns, as there might be in the medical um, side, that some people say some children aren't getting an intervention while other children are getting an intervention? Let me say first that the best answer to all these questions is in a book called Uncontrolled 
written by Jim Manzi. He used to be a visiting fellow here at Brookings. Um, he's a businessman, owns his own company, and he has conducted literally thousands of these random assignment evaluations, and he does it for large American businesses like Costco and uh, Subway and Macy's, all sorts of companies are using random assignment studies to solve very important issues like, does it make a difference what kind of display I have in my store window? Or sometimes much more difficult issues like, does this training work and so forth? So we have the technology down pat and these questions about ethics and so forth have been dealt with in many cases and they are still controversial to some extent. The reason that you can do random assignment, to, I think the most serious ethical question is that in order to do it, you have to at least temporarily withhold the treatment from, it doesn't necessarily have to be half, but it has to be a substantial number of people who do not get the treatment. The answer about why it's ethical to do that is because first, for most programs, many programs, not everybody's going to get the treatment because we don't have enough money. Right now in big national programs, we spend a lot of money like daycare. There are literally millions of kids eligible for daycare who do not get the benefit because Congress does not appropriate enough money. Same thing with our housing programs. So if you're, if you're, if you're not doing anything to to reduce the total number of people who would get the intervention, who would get the program, then that really, in many people would say, solves the ethical question. The second thing is, in most cases, you're not doing a random assignment study unless you really want to know if the program works, which means you don't know if it works. So you're not really withholding a treatment that we strongly believe works. Same thing in medicine. Think of it in medicine. Um, there may be some laboratory tests, often experiments with animals, that a certain new drug will probably have a good effect, but we don't know for sure, and you don't know for sure until you try it with humans. So in some cases, these drugs actually have serious side effects. It's better to be in the control group than in the experimental group. So those are the two things I think that make it ethical. One, that we don't have enough money to go around. Everybody's not going to get it anyway, so we don't reduce the number of people that gets something that we have reason to think is good. And the second thing is, even if we have reason to think it's good, we don't really know for sure. Let's go in uh, a bit to the the politics and the process that you and Greg document so well in this book. I mean, it, it is a page turner. It's about how uh, what some have called the, the sausage making of public policy happens in Washington. Uh, you've got uh, case studies on the uh, nurse family partnership on teen pregnancy prevention programs and, and four others that there's six case studies in the book. They're very well detailed. But you have members of Congress, you have their staffs, you have agency staff in the executive agencies, you have the White House offices, you have OMB, you have the president, you have lobbying groups coming in. It's amazing the amount of uh, activity around what is going on with the policymaking process. And these aren't even I mean, major national pieces of legislation like the Affordable Care Act or the or the Recovery Act, although as you point out, they're they're hidden in those sometimes to get them passed. It seems very complicated. Can you talk? Uh, maybe pick one of those and talk about the battle to make evidence based uh, policy in that particular uh, venue and that initiative happen. Right. I was with the Ways and Means Committee for fourteen years. I was uh, in the White House for a year, and uh, in both cases, I was deeply involved in legislation. Probably as a result of that, I am just fascinated 
by the legislative process. I mean, democracy in action. Um, and I think Churchill once said, uh, democracy is the worst form of government except all the others. Uh, and if you watch, as you put it, the sausage being made, I could see that some people would say, oh my gosh, that's such an ugly process. But on the other hand, it's fascinating and it works in the long run. So I spent a lot of time, Greg and I did in the book, uh, first of all, uncovering the story of how it got the, how these initiatives got passed in Congress. And then secondly, we spent a lot of time talking to the people involved and thinking through, you know, what are the factors that enabled it to be passed. There's no doubt in this case that the major factor involved in passing these six separate uh, pieces of legislation that taken together are worth a, maybe around $5.3 billion uh, to our best calculation. The most important factor is that the people that wanted to pass it hid the legislation in big bills. This is a typical strategy on the Hill. If you have something you want to pass, you stick it in a big bill. Everybody's going to argue about the provisions in the big bill and hardly anybody's going to notice that your little teeny dinky provision is in there. This happens all the time in Washington. Right now, we're getting ready to pass a continuing resolution, which is essentially the budget for you know our federal agencies and maybe over a third of the government is going to be in that continuing resolution. So we're talking about, you know, a trillion dollars more. And so if you have a little thing that costs a billion, I mean, who, who cares about a billion, you know, in a trillion dollar package? So that's one thing. Second thing is, however, this is still democratic. And the reason is that you have to work with the committees and you have to work with the, with the senior members of the committee and in many of those committees, even though everybody talks all the time about how horrible things are here in Washington and you can't get anything done because the parties hate each other and so forth, they work together behind the scenes all the time. And there were none of these initiatives that both Republicans and Democrats on the committee didn't know what was going on. They knew what was going on and they roughly speaking supported it even though it was President Obama who was doing it and, you know, I think it's not a secret that Republicans, <laughs> Obama might not be their favorite president. So I think part of, the, part of the reason here is that there is a growing commitment to evidence and a growing acceptance by both parties of the logic of evidence that we need to figure out if these programs work. And even if we have to cut spending as we did, for example, when we're trying to balance the budget, uh, across the board cuts are completely stupid. And we've done it twice now or even more than that. Across the board cuts like sequestration, an ugly word, but we did that. To thousands of programs got cut willy-nilly, including really, really good ones that we know work and ones that are not worth a nickel. So that's not the way to govern. So if we knew what programs didn't work and we cut those programs, we'd be way better off. Almost everybody accepts the logic of this. So these provisions going through Congress were – at least somewhat popular, uh, the staff, the majority staff uh, in both the House and Senate worked very hard to get them done. And the committee chairman, people in the White House, they all worked together. They knew what was going on and they passed the legislation. Now, subsequently, Republicans did try to kill some of the programs, um, especially the teen pregnancy one because there's some real behind-the-scenes stuff there uh, that, the, that the parties don't agree on. Republicans think that the best policy is absence only 
and Democrats think abstinence is okay, but you ought to focus on birth control as well because otherwise they're going to get pregnant because a lot of kids are not going to remain absent. By the way, uh, our best indication is about half the kids that graduate from high school have had sex. So on that score, the Democrats are certainly right. And especially there's been a lot of movement in Washington over the last 15 years, uh, 20 years maybe, of a growing respect for abstinence, that the abstinence message is a very serious message. It's the one the parents favor and even kids, if you can believe that. They say, no, this is the best message. So there's been a huge, at least since the early 90s, big fight between Republicans and Democrats about the role of abstinence. So that was very controversial and, and Republicans did try to kill it. Uh, uh, and they actually did kill it in the House, but the Senate saved it. Now it's Republicans in the Senate as well. So I have a great fear that these initiatives could be ended because of conflicts between the two parties. And the shame of that would be most of them started to be implemented in about 2011. So next year, this year, 2015 or next year, and the year after, 2015 and 2016, is when we're really going to start to get the results of the many, many scientific evaluations that are taking place as a result of these initiatives. And we'll lose that if these programs are killed. Let me ask one more question about the, the, the grand politics of this. And that has to do with, uh, with people uh, who look at the federal government and, and they say, I don't want the federal government to fund any social programs. I just don't believe in that. Uh, they may not believe in the state governments doing it either, but there there is a current that, uh, despite the promise of uh, evidence based policymaking and the promise it holds to deliver real results for the money, there are some people who are just opposed to any type of government spending. What what do you say to that viewpoint? They lost. We're already doing it. We've been doing it for many, many, many years. I recently had a chance to write a long chapter about the growth of social policy at the federal level. Um, and to some extent, the state level as well. And it goes back following the Civil War. Uh, we had uh, a kind of Social Security program for Civil War veterans. Uh, that's one of the biggest initial uh, social programs we had. We had programs before that. But so there's a long history here of government saying we do have a responsibility under certain conditions to conduct social programs to help people individually. And those programs, of course, have grown like mad. They've especially grown uh, since the war on poverty of the mid-1960s. And hardly anybody – Gingrich, by the way, gave a speech on the floor about this uh, when Republicans uh, – took over the Congress from – took over the House uh, from uh, from Democrats in the election of 1994. So right at the beginning of 1995, in the opening session of the House, Gingrich gave a talk about this and he basically said that Republicans accept the idea that government does have these social responsibilities for the elderly, for the sick, for the lame. And a big one, the one that I'm the most interested in, is for helping equalize opportunity in the United States. That's a really crucial one. And almost every American supports it. There are groups, like you say, that think we shouldn't be doing it, but they lost a long time ago. They're a minimum influence. I cannot foresee any circumstances under which they would be able to seriously cut back these programs. They could be cut back for budget purposes and will be, especially Medicare at some point. Uh, but that's for a completely different reason. It's not because it's not a government responsibility. It's because we have to – we have to – we can't spend – continue to spend so much money uh, out into the future because we're going to bankrupt the United States. Let's look ahead a little bit and you referenced the years 2015, 2016. Uh, how will we be able to tell if 
evidence-based strategy is a success? What are right. some of the things right. that you're looking for? Okay. First of all, we have to show that some of these programs work, which we will. If the pass is any guide, well over half of them will be shown not to work. So first of all, in one point there is that there will be some programs that work that will build confidence that this approach is a wise one and that we can sort the wheat from the chaff and we'll find the good programs and we'll build those, scale up to use the word uh, that I used a few minutes ago. Secondly, what are we going to do about the programs that didn't work? The answer is not to defund these programs. Pretend you're, it's your program. You thought it up. You've been implementing it for 10 years, 15 years, and now along come these guys from the federal government and say you have to evaluate it. So you think, yeah, I can evaluate it because it's a good program. It'll be shown to work and it doesn't work. Now what? If we just cut them loose and cut their funding, that is, I think that's the wrong thing. We can build the culture that I've been talking about here. If the federal attitude is okay, let's improve it. Do you have the right kind of teachers? Would the curriculum last long enough? Did the kids get enough during the day? I mean, there are a million things that could go wrong uh, with a program at the local level. So let's find out how to improve the program. If we do that, I think we can begin to build this future of evidence. And in the long run, more and more of our programs will work. And the real bottom line here, the, the acid test, is that our nation's leading social problems will begin to decline. They will be reduced. We'll have less and less teen pregnancy. We'll have less and less delinquency. We'll have less and less school dropout. We'll have more and more good grades by kids in school, especially kids from low-income families who now don't do very well in school. We'll have more and more kids go to college. We'll have more and more kids complete college. Those are the kind of outcomes that we'll get, and we can actually do that. I'm confident we now have individual programs that operate on a small scale that do all those things that I just discussed. If we could grow those programs at the same time, that we maintain the quality of the programs, we could really have an impact and make a much better nation. And in my, the thing that I'm most interested in, we could have much more quality of opportunity in the United States. Do you think the, uh, the 2016 presidential election outcome will have an impact on the, uh, the building of the evidence-based culture? You know, I hope not. You'd like to be able – there are certain things you want both sides to be committed to like freedom of the press, freedom of religion and so forth. Parts of our constitution, no matter which party's in power, we can be confident those things are going to go on. And to a very substantial degree, that's true with our social policy. Republicans might be a little more likely to cut it back. There were some cuts at the beginning of the Reagan administration, for example. But it was nothing like a huge, you know, get rid of 25, 50 percent of things. So I think there's agreement on the idea that we're going to have social policy. We're going to try to help poor kids and families, so forth. And so I think that there's not a threat to that. But there could be a threat to the evidence-based initiatives. If there's a Republican president and Republicans control the House and the Senate, given their general opposition to Obama and the identification between these initiatives and the Obama administration, it's possible that Republicans would cut back on some of them. However, I would point out to you that Paul Ryan, who's one of the most influential Republicans and now is the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, arguably the most important committee in the Congress, has just introduced legislation, bipartisan, with Patty Murray, who's the head of the Budget Committee in the Senate, 
to have a commission on evidence-based policy. I have talked to Ryan personally. I know his staff. They are all in on evidence. They think evidence is really important. They want to improve these programs just like everybody else. So I think even if we got a Republican president uh, and the House and Senate continue to be controlled, especially if some of these evaluations can show the promise of this movement, I think it will continue. To sort of uh, wind wind down here, I think some people might be surprised. I don't want to over over egg that pudding, but they might be surprised that you're a Republican, uh, but you're doing this research and and you've praised the Obama administration for its uh, efforts along these lines. How do you respond to that? Very simple. I'm at Brookings. We're independent. We call them as we see them. Otherwise, I mean, that's the point of a think tank. We all know that a lot of think tanks and individuals in think tanks are not really like that. Uh, but I take that very seriously. I call them as I see them. On average, if I took positions on all our social policies, it would be clear that I'm a Republican. But in this case of evaluating these policies and the energy that the administration put into this, these initiatives and the talent that was displayed in the way they did it, I think any reasonable observer would come out exactly where I came out. This is very promising. This was great work. The people in the administration are exceptionally talented and knowledgeable. They did it very well. And I would point out to you also, we probably our most evidence-based organization in Washington, D.C. is the Institute of Education Sciences. And that was implemented by Republicans. The head of it was appointed by Republicans. And very much against a, a lot of popular press on Republicans, that was all about evidence and still is. It, it has revolutionized educational research. So there is a strand and in some cases a river in both parties of a commitment to scientific evidence and using evidence to improve our programs. So in the long run, I hope it doesn't make any difference to you Republican or Democrat that this movement will continue and, and it will result in improving our programs, which both parties want to do. And so it seems like this book is just the beginning of your process, your your investigation of of the evidence-based culture. Well, I'm getting a little old, uh, so I don't know if I'll be around for the full implementation, but I am thinking very seriously. In fact, I'm starting to write a grant proposal. If I can get the money, I'm going to go out and study what actually happened at the local level, how these programs were implemented, and what happens to them after the evaluations come in. Answer your question about how do those local programs evaluate. I want to know more about that. I want to know about like in Texas, there are probably 50 different sites or at least 30 that have the home visiting programs. I'd like to study those. How did they implement them? What did they and then how did they evaluate them? So I think that's that's the part of this process where we could really fail still, even though this is such a great idea. We need to know a lot more about how these good programs are implemented. And if we can improve that process, the implementation process, I think that'll be another giant leap forward. Well, uh, I want to thank you, Ron, for your, your time today, your, your insight, and also thank you and Greg Margolis in Absentia uh, for this really fascinating and important work. Good. Thank you very much for having me. It was a great opportunity. To learn more about Ron Haskins and his new book, Show Me the Evidence, Obama's Fight for Rigor and Results in Social Policy, visit our website at brookings.edu. And now, Wells Bennett on robots. My name is Wells Bennett, and I'm a fellow in the Governance Studies program here at Brookings. The Civilian Robotics series is about, in a nutshell, the responsible integration of robotic technologies into 
civil society at large. It's something of a commonplace to say that the robotics age is still a ways off in the future, but in a lot of ways that's probably incorrect. The technology has been around for a good while, and really we've reached a stage where it's starting to mature and enter an almost a, a kind of at, adolescent phase. And so the paper series is about what that means for law and regulation. And it's six pieces, and I think you can divide them into two categories. Uh, three of the papers tackle what might be called broad questions of law and regulation, the larger pie in the sky sorts of things that legislators or regulators, executive officials are going to have to bear in mind. And on the other hand, you have more specific recommendations at the level of policy. And uh, let me talk about some of the broad questions first. There's a piece we have by Ryan Kahlo, which talks about the need or not for a federal robotics commission. If you take as a given what many people do, that robots are different and pose exceptional challenges, then there's a pretty strong case to be made for having a federal entity that could advise and assist other arms of the federal bureaucracy in dealings with robotics challenges. And the difficulty is that hasn't happened a lot heretofore. Um, but if you look at the broad sweep of history, we've done things like that to address the development of cross-cutting and very consequential technologies. So that's a broad consideration. Another piece looks at the mingling further of man and machine and what that will mean at a high level of governance. Ben Wittes and Jane Chong say it's going to mean reconsidering some key principles underlying surveillance law, chiefly the principle that data voluntarily turned over to third parties will forfeit protection of the Fourth Amendment. This example might illustrate the tension posed by cyborgs in law. There's this old line of Supreme Court case law that says in so many words that if you tell somebody something or you give your records or your metadata to a phone company or to a bank, uh, you lose constitutional protection those and the government can get them without recourse to uh, the warrant requirement of the Fourth Amendment. Now that might make sense for bank records or telephone records in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, maybe even today, maybe not. But imagine metadata generated by an electronic pacemaker. That's a record of your body made by your body, but transmitted to medical professionals beyond your body who analyze it. And that's just another example of kind of a broad principle that's going to be really strained the more cyborgs become a prevalent feature of our society. And uh, lastly, we have design considerations, and those are taken up in a piece by Heather Knight from Carnegie Mellon. Her claim in so many words is that there are different design and interface considerations that should inform different kinds of robots. And she has a taxonomy of robots that she considers telepresence robots, for example, when your likeness is beamed somewhere else and represented by a robot. Or, for example, collaborative robots, the little computer-driven thing that follows you around to vacuum up your house. And finally, we have autonomous, semi-autonomous vehicles, driverless cars. In Heather's view, there are different interfaces for those machines that make them work. For example, how human you want the robot to be or whether you want to interact with it like a person or make you feel like a person. Those are the things that design considerations that policy should also take into account as we start thinking about, well, what kind of robots do we want doing what kind of job? So that's the sort of broad level aspect of the series. The more granular has to do with specific policy. And unsurprisingly, uh, we have 
three pieces in there that deal with two, I think, of the more controversial technologies in play, driverless cars and unmanned aircraft systems or drones as they're more commonly, if inaccurately, known. As for the drones, uh, I wrote a piece, as did uh, Greg McNeil of Pepperdine. Essentially, the two of us tackled different arms of the same question, what what drones are going to mean for privacy and the considerations that regulators ought to have in mind. And they're different in in light of the kind of surveillance. Uh, Greg, in his paper, addresses unmanned surveillance from aircraft operated by the government. And he argues in so many words that a lot of the privacy concerns, though real, shouldn't be tackled by uh, aggressive or cross-cutting warrant requirements or other legislation that might stifle the use of surveillance, aerial surveillance and other technologies that might prove helpful. So for example, he says a property rights approach to regulation is a good idea or uh, duration-based surveillance legislation that regulates how long you could track a single individual would also be a good idea. But a bad idea would be requiring the police to get a warrant every time they needed a drone. On the other side of the equation, of course, you have private privacy or surveillance conducted from unmanned aircraft operated by corporations and individuals. And I talk about that in my paper. I survey what I think are two competing viewpoints out there in the scholarly literature. And one calls for a very broad brush federal approach and another for a more sort of wait and see state-based approach. And I think that second group uh, has the strongest arguments about how we ought to handle uh, surveillance from privately operated vehicles. That having been said, I think the FAA, as I set forth in the paper, can play a very constructive role uh, given its growing expertise in surveillance operated by non-governmental actors. So I encourage the use of the FAA's licensing scheme to get at some of the privacy harms that might happen over time uh, that we might not capture without a broad-based federal regime. Lastly, there's driverless cars, the subject of a paper by UCLA's John Villasenor. His paper has uh, some thematic similarities to the paper by Greg McNeil in that both acknowledge that some of the fears associated with the technology's development, though they're real, uh, can be somewhat overstated. And they both caution against allowing a kind of caricature of the technology's risks to inform the legislative response. For that reason, John argues that products liability law has done a good and comprehensive job over the years of accounting for the risks associated with ordinary cars, just cars on the road that have people in them driving. And he argues the same should pretty much hold true with regard to driverless cars. Accordingly, the principles he pushes for contain recommendations that legislators, for example, account for some of the unique and specific detailed risks posed by driverless cars in the world of liability, but he cautions against any kind of broad brush or almost precautionary principle type approach on the grounds that doing so would uh, make the technology more expensive, make it less available, chill its development, and actually forestall the development of machines that might, in the main, make for less risky travel on the roads. Of course, uh, there's plenty more to say about all these papers and the issues that are addressed in them, and we've got a lot more detail on our website, brookings.edu forward slash civilian robotics. That's it for the podcast today. If you have any questions for Ron, David Wells, or any guests of the show, please send an email to bcp at brookings.edu. This podcast is made possible by the production skills of Zach Colzer, the art design of Jessica Pavone, and web support from Rebecca Weiser and Eric Abalahan. 
You can listen to episodes on our website at brookings.edu bcp, on iTunes, and on Stitcher.